You may be seated, and uh, we can let the children be dismissed for junior church. As they go, I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. Two thoughts run through my mind as I think about the passage that I mentioned in my prayer from the book of Jude. Jude 21 gives us this directive. It says, keep yourselves in the love of God. Okay, keep yourselves in the love of God. And I don't have time this morning to kind of unpack all of what that means because I want to spend our time in Ephesians 3, but I want to challenge you as I go through this and as we give words that describe the love of God, I want to challenge you as a church family to, in the way that you did to people in a circumstance of struggling and suffering. He said to them, keep yourselves in the love of God. Now, what I find strange about that command is this. Romans chapter 8 argues that nothing can separate us from the love of God. And yet at the same time, we are commanded to keep ourselves in the love of God. Those two truths or directives seem to be paradoxes, don't they? They seem to be self-evidently contradictory, but they really are not. Okay, the, the essence of God's love for us being eternal in Romans 8, and that is the fact that nothing can separate us from us from it, that is the promise of God for us as His children. Keeping ourselves in the love of God means remind yourselves about, meditate upon the love that God has for you, and let that meditation affect the practical outworking of your daily life. The way that I'm summarizing my sermon this morning is this comprehend God's incomprehensible love for us. And I may want to change that a little bit and cause it to say something like this. Begin to comprehend God's incomprehensible love for us. In Ephesians 3, this is the prayer that Paul prays for the believers in Ephesus. Verse 13 of chapter 3, he says, I ask therefore that you not be discouraged because of my suffering. They are for your glory, for your advantage, and for your benefit. After saying that to them, he returns to the prayer that he began in verse 1. For this reason, I kneel before the Father. I go to God and beg benefits on your behalf. Verse 15. From him, his whole family on heaven and earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And that, that's where we ended last week. Pick up here this week, 17b. And I pray that you, the church believers, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how, and this is very familiar territory, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to all the measure of the fullness of God. And I think we could end it, add at the end of that phrase, of God who is the very essence of love. This morning my call to you is comprehend 
God's incomprehensible love so that in the midst of the spiritual battle that you are facing, when everything is said and done, you can find yourself standing in the love of God. Now, I'm, I'm drawing from Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 and following, where four times in four verses, the word stand, stand firm, stand in the battle is used. And I'm convinced of this. At the beginning of this discourse on practical Christian living, chapters 4 through 6 of Ephesians, the Apostle Paul, before he goes into that, prays a prayer for the, his fellow believers who were being prone towards some degree of discouragement or spiritual disorientation. And so he lifts them up to the Father so that they would not be discouraged, so that instead they would be encouraged and built up and stabilized in the love of God. In other words, Paul's hope for the stability of the church in Ephesus was not in their tenacity and in their ability. His hope was, as we saw last week, in the unlimited power of God and in the unlimited love of God that we will look at this morning. Paul wants them to be people that are kept by the power of God and in the love of God so that no matter what comes, they will be men and women and young people who at the end of the day, at the end of the spiritual battle, are standing firm in the love and power of Christ. Folks, to me that is so deeply encouraging. Because what it means is my standing is not dependent primarily upon my ability and capacity. Is it dependent in a secondary way? I think the answer to that is yes. We're called to put forth effort in the Christian life. But in putting forth that effort, we are in a cooperative experience with God in His infinite love and in His infinite power. And so we should be people that rise to the challenge of Christian living with confidence that God is able and with confidence that God loves us and will not let us fall. May we be people that stand in His power last week, this week. May we be people that comprehend God's incomprehensible love. Because love is the topic of this passage of Scripture. I want to submit to you a description of God's love. I, I don't even want to call it a definition because I know that what I'm going to say at some levels falls short. So I give you this as, just for your meditation, a description of God's love. What, when we talk about God's love, what is it? Okay, and I give you this description. I think we could come at it from many different angles. And this is the beautiful thing about God's love. Verse 19 is going to say to us, it defies human understanding. Okay, it is a topic that is thrown beyond the realms of what we can comprehend. So what do we do? We, we think about the love of God and we seek to describe it and understand it from all different angles and from all different experiences. And you'll find this in your Christian life. There are certain circumstances that illuminate you to aspects of the love of God that you never saw before, even though you may have been walking with Christ for 30 plus years. Various circumstances illuminate various aspects of God's love. So for me today, this is how I would describe it from this text. God's love is His personal, if you're taking the notes, this is in, in the note sheet, His personal and irrevocable choice or commitment to do us good in spite of the cost. Okay, it is God's personal and irrevocable choice to do us good in spite of what it costs. That should sound to every married person in this room profoundly familiar. Because marital love that we pledged 
on the day of her wedding was without condition. Okay, I have never been to a wedding and heard people submit conditional promises. I will love you. I will be faithful to you. I will stay with you in sickness and in health if. Okay? Any of you ever been to a wedding where that was the case? Okay? Some people sadly have them. They're called prenuptials. Okay? That's a scary thought that distorts the love of God. God's love is His personal, irrevocable choice to do us good in spite of what it's going to cost. Now, as we get into this text, I want us to focus our attention on two words that come up in the second half of verse 17. Now, the beginning of verse 17 talks about Christ coming to be a permanent, not temporary resident in our hearts. He says, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I think this flows out of that indwelling presence of Christ. And I pray that you being rooted and established in love. Now, these are two interesting words that describe the effect or aim of the love of God that comes to every Christian. I want you to think about this with me. Rooted is an illustration from the realm of agriculture. Grounded means built upon a foundation which comes from the realm of architecture. Okay? Two pictures that help us to understand the effect or aim of Christ's personal presence in our lives. Why does Christ come in by the Holy Spirit and abide in you? I believe God's aim is this. I believe God's aim is that He wants to root you and establish you in His love. He wants to give you like a tree, deep roots, and like a building, He wants to give you a firm foundation. Now here's what's scary about the analogy. Most of us don't look at a tree and contemplate its root structure until the tree falls down. I was riding up on uh, Route 80 last weekend. I noticed a couple massive trees had fallen off the side. Remember the rainstorms we had last weekend? A couple massive trees had fallen down and onto the highway, were cut and removed from the highway. I looked up the, the, the large trunk of this tree towards the roots. You know why? Because when a tree falls, the first thing you look at is what? Well, it depends if your car was out there. The first thing you do is you look to see if your car is under the tree. Okay? But the first thing I always do when I look at a tree, I look at the root system. Why? Because if a tree blows down in this wind, but didn't blow down in wind all the other times, the question is, what caused it to come down? Okay? Roots are not the appreciated part of trees. In this fall season, looking at beautiful fall and autumn foliage, you're not going out there and saying, man, I, I can't imagine what the roots are like that cause those leaves to look like that. Right? And yet, the beauty of those leaves and the height of those trees could not exist apart from the root system. And the same thing is true with buildings. Okay, the foundation is critical to a structure. Here's what's fascinating about roots and foundations. They are unseen and they are almost always underappreciated. Is it any wonder that Jude would have to say to the struggling church in his little book in the New Testament, verse 21, keep yourselves in the love of God? Maintain a close proximity and relationship with the love of God. Meditate on it. Think about it. Study it. Why does he say that? 
And why is it that Paul prays for these people that they would be rooted and established in love? And it's, 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 kind of a, it's kind of a fascinating statement here because you can ask this question. Is this being rooted and established in love a command? Is he saying to them, you brothers and sisters in Christ, you be rooted and established in God's love. Now if you go back into it in the original language, what you're going to find out is this. It is talking about an act done by someone else upon an object. It's in the passive tense. You would be rooted and grounded. Someone would so affect you that the result is that you send down deep, strong roots or you build upon a strong, firm foundation. Folks, here's a beautiful thought. This verb is in the passive tense. And it is in what we call the perfect tense in the original language. So this rooting and establishing in love is the work of God. And it is a work for every believer that comes with an abiding consequence. Let's see if I can illustrate it in this way. Because it, there is no English equivalent to this original language dynamic. On January 29th in 1987... Becca Hoff was born to Tim and Ruth Hoff. The outcome of that is irrevocable. It is unchangeable. Do you understand what I'm saying? There is no way that Becca Hoff can cease to be our daughter. Okay, that's... She was born into our family and the abiding consequence of that act is that she remains our daughter until all of us are dead and gone. And even after that, the historical record will show that she was the daughter of Tim and Ruth Hoff. That is a truth that is what we would say is in the perfect tense. Based upon an event that happened in the past, there is an abiding result and consequence. That is exactly the kinds of words or verbiage, if you will, that Paul uses here. God, in His grace, when you came to Christ rooted you and established you in his love. It was his work. It's something that he initiated. If you go back to chapter 1 real quick, just look back to Ephesians chapter 1. I want you to see the initiation of this love. It is the work of God. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus. Okay, so Paul is entering into a context of worship. Praise be to God, who has blessed us, that is every believer, in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. He has richly blessed us. For He chose us in Him, when? Before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight, in love. Okay, He predestined us to be adopted as sons. And if you study adoption in the New Testament, Greco-Roman world, it was a permanent relationship that was established based upon a document signed by the receiving parents. And the result of that adoption was irrevocable. Folks, before eternity began, God set His heart on you. And in that love choice for you. He sought to root you and to establish you in a permanent relationship with himself. Here's the other thing I think that is beautiful. 
God initiates the relationship of love and he maintains the relationship of love in an irrevocable and unswerving way. He is committed to you. And you and I can take no credit for that commitment that God has to us. So the first thought I leave with you this morning is this. God's love in the life of a believer is a stabilizing effect. Okay, it is stabilizing. It produces confidence. It's like ballast that settles the ship in the water. The love of God will root you like a tree is rooted by rivers of living water. God's love will establish you like a building is built upon a strong foundation. Some of the buildings in New York City are built on foundations that run six stories deep. Okay, you know what I think when I see that? Firm, strong, I'm confident to go up in that building. Okay, the love of God in Christ comes to you to have a stabilizing confidence in breathing effect so that we can talk about our relationship with Christ in this way. John 10, 28, Jesus says this, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and no one is able to pluck them out of my hand an irrevocable relationship. Psalm 32 and verse 10, listen to this. Many are the woes of the wicked, but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the man who trusts in him. So many are the struggles of the wicked, but the unfailing love of God surrounds those who simply do what? Not earn his love and faithfulness, but those that trust in him experience this abiding deep comfort. Psalm 90 verse 14, satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. You know what the psalmist is saying, God? I beg of you to pour out into my life your unfailing love. That is God's covenant love, unbreakable and irrevocable. Psalm 143 and verse 8, let the morning bring me word of your unfailing love. For I have put my trust in you. Show me your way, the way that I should go. For to you I lift up my soul. Think about that when you wake up in the morning. Let the morning bring me word, refreshment, encouragement, reminders of your unfailing love. For I have put my trust in you. Here's the effect of God's love. God's love, when it is known and comprehended, will secure, establish, and stabilize his children. My advice to every parent is this, particularly fathers with daughters, because that's all I really know about. My advice is this. Tell your child often and regularly that you love them. Dad, your daughters desperately need to know your love. Don't let them lacking, starving, and vulnerable. Show them affection. They are interesting, my experience, Complex creatures. But they desperately need your love. And when your love is poured out upon them, it will have the effect of bringing security and confidence in their lives. Any wise dad understands that. If I don't love my children and pour out affection upon my children, I will leave them starving for affection. God is a wise father. And you know what he does? He pours out on his children this unfailing love. And the result is 
Not always perfectly, but the result when that love is received and responded to properly is a degree of confidence and a degree of security that comes into the life of those who trust in Him. And so Romans 8 can say something like this. What shall we say then in response to this? If God is for us, to our advantage, for our benefit, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, will He not along with Him graciously give us all things? Who can bring a charge against God's elect? Go down to verse 35 and he says this. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Paul says no in all these things. We are supra conquerors. We are more than conquerors. Through him that loves us. Folks, we need to comprehend God's love because when we do, the first effect will be this. It will begin to stabilize our lives. So the question I ask you this morning is this. Are you meditating on God's love with the effect that it is bringing stability, that you are feeling rooted in your relationship with Him, that you feel the strength of a strong foundation and can climb high in the building of life because you know that there is a rock-solid foundation? God's love is a stabilizer, be rooted and established in it by God's grace. Second thought that I want to deal with is from verse 18. Notice what he says. He says, I pray that you being rooted and grounded in love may have power together with all the saints to grasp. And then he goes on into this description of God's love. Now, I think it's fascinating that Paul would talk about the love of God not as a private experience, but as a corporate experience. Okay? God's love is to be experienced in the context of a family. Okay? It is not for Christians to have something that we would call a private faith. It is a corporate and family experience. And so Paul can say to the believers in Ephesians, he says, I want you to know the love of Christ and grasp it together with all the saints. That is the context in which we say God's love is best understood in the context of vital relationships. And, and I just submit to you these two thoughts. It is a corporate or family experience, not a solitary or private pursuit. Okay, now, please understand what I'm saying. It doesn't mean that we don't pursue God in private. But we don't do it privately. Meaning that it is, it is my comfort and my encouragement that I'm finding in God. It's all about me. You'll never find that in the Christian experience. So Ephesians 2.19 says, you are of God's household. Okay, you, when you came to Christ, you became part of a bigger picture of what God is doing on planet Earth. One writer put it this way. He said, it needs the whole people of God to understand the whole love of God. Okay, it needs the whole people of God to understand the whole love of God. If your experience in God's love is purely and simply private, you do not know God as you could. Okay, we are to encourage each other in this process together with all of the saints. It is best understood in the context of relationships. Now, let me just argue this point briefly from the entire storyline of the book of Ephesians. It is a book about how 
Jews and Gentiles become part of this new construct called the church, made up of all kinds of people. If you're familiar with the Greco-Roman world, you know that the culture was very stratified. It was broken up along lines of gender. It was broken up along lines of race. It was broken up along lines of religious uh, preference, if you will, because it was a very pluralistic culture. Okay, it was divided in terms of how much money you made. It was divided in every way, slave and free. There were all kinds of divisions that characterized and made, made that stratification normative in the ancient world. Do you realize that the gospel of Christ came to shatter all of those structures? And to bring together people from every tongue, tribe, race, social status, gender, all those things. God is seeking to build a family that is called the body of Christ. In spite of all the divisions that existed in the ancient world, Jesus Christ came to establish a body called the church where no matter what people's status was, they could come and worship and serve together. The outworking of this love being understood best in the context of relationship, I think it becomes clear if we look at a couple passages in Ephesians. Look at Ephesians 4.32. Okay, Ephesians 4.32. Just running through a couple of verses. It says, Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other as God in Christ forgave you. Okay, now what does that mean? That means every time I am wronged by a brother or sister in Christ, I have been given an opportunity by God to better understand His love as I exercise it in the brokenness of relationships. You know what most people do when there's brokenness in their relationships in the body of Christ and truthfully in the context of our world? You know what most people do? They run or they fight. You know how you get to know God's love better? Practice it. It will so test you. Practicing forgiveness to someone who has wounded you will show you the love of God in a way that you could never comprehend it. And so Paul says to the church in Ephesians 4 verse 32, be kind and compassionate towards one another. Ephesians 5 verses 1 and 2. Look at this text. It says, be imitators of God. Therefore, as dearly loved children, live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. As I live out God-like love, I begin to understand it. Why? Because I understand what it takes to love someone who offends me repeatedly, or who lets me down repeatedly. And as you begin to live out that love and express that kind of love towards people that don't deserve it, you will gain a clearer understanding of God's love for you. So it's best understood in the context of relationships. Ephesians 5 and verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her. That repeated sacrifice, men, on behalf of your wife, who we all know is imperfect. That repeated love for her that sometimes may not be deserved will teach you about God's love for you, which is undeserved. You see why these directives keep coming? We learn about God's love as we practice God's love. And it's fascinating, at the end of chapter 5 and verse 32, Paul will talk about this give and take, this reciprocal love of a wife for an imperfect man, and this love of a man for an imperfect wife. That interaction shows us how much Christ loves us. So in verse 32, Paul will say, when you love like this in a self-sacrificing way in the context of relationships... Folks, if, if when you 
have a conflict with a brother or sister in Christ, you flee and you don't practice God-like love, you missed a wonderful opportunity to learn what God is really like. See, the easiest thing to do when you're offended is to run. It's not hard to run. People around you do it all the time. It's when you love people and forgive people and restore relationships with people who have hurt you that you really will understand what it costs to love. And when you experience some degree of cost in your love relationship with others, you will understand how much it costs God to love an imperfect person like you. Does that make sense? Okay, look, as parents we know this experience, don't we? Loving kids is costly, right? I say this to my daughters, and I think I've shared this with you. I said to them, no matter what you do, I love you. I love you. That's not changing. Okay, why? Why would you express that kind of risky love? Well, here's the bottom line. That's the kind of love that God shows to us, isn't it? He doesn't say, I will give you unfailing love if. No, his commitment to us is irrevocable. So John 10 can say, no one can pluck you out of my hand. Romans 8, 28 or, or 32, nothing can separate you from my love. Nothing. There's nothing I can do that can break me away from the unbreakable, irrevocable love of God. Folks, start thinking about that. Start thinking about your relationships in the context of permanence. And you know what you're going to go to God and beg for? You're going to beg God for an understanding of His love because you're going to need to understand His love to practice that kind of love. One writer has put it this way. He said, the secret of loving is being loved. Does that make sense? The secret of loving is being loved. If you don't know God's love, I'm going to tell you something, you're not going to be able to practice it. You may know it by faith personally. You may have experienced being born again by the grace of God. But if you are not keeping yourself in the love of God and meditating on how much He puts up with you in spite of your inconsistencies and weakness and sin, if you aren't aren't aware of that, cognizant of that, Your capacity to love people who hurt you in the context of relationships will be weak. And if your love for others is weak, you need to get back to a study of the love of God. And as you understand how much He loves you, you will find a revived capacity to love others. Because here's the bottom line. You will not be able to be a person who meditates on the love of God while refusing to give the forgiveness of love to others in the context of your relationships. It is impossible to meditate on and appreciate the love of God, to be rooted and established in it, to be stabilized in it and not practice it. That's why many times as Christians we live with instability rather than the stability that the love of Christ brings. And another reason that we fail to comprehend God's amazing love I mean, really get it, is because we tend to live a life that is far too isolated and private in terms of our faith. And so I encourage you this morning, find people that you can share the love of Christ with. Find people that you can know the love of Christ with. And in the context of your family, you have, you have if you will, in a sense, a lab where you can practice and know this love and the relationships that God has blessed you with. 
The secret to this love is being loved. And so John would say later in 1 John 3, 1, how great is the love that the Father has lavished on us. We are called children of God. Folks, do you understand that? See how great a love the Father has lavished upon us. We are called children of God. Who are we? We're rebels against His will by nature. And what are we called? Children of God as a result of what? Simple faith, seeing our bankruptcy, crying out to God for our need for His grace and forgiveness and righteousness through Jesus. And when that comes, what happens? We are called children, sons, daughters of God. The secret to loving in this way, in the context of relationships, is keeping your relationship with God and your understanding of God's love for you very, very clear. His love is best known, best understood, richly manifested in the context of your physical human family and in the context of your spiritual local church family. Do you have a vital relationship with those sitting around you this morning? where you practice this kind of love. The last thought that emerges out of this text, I think is a bit of a paradox also. Look at verse 18 and 19. Paul says, I pray that you may have power together with all the saints to grasp how high and wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. I think I might have added a word in there. Okay, but that's okay, all right? Because I did, okay, that's what I thought, all right. Well, it is, Rachel, it's high, high. That's the Greek word, actually. No, I'm just teasing. Okay, what's going on here? That you may be able to grasp, along with all the saints, your brothers and sisters in Christ, this love, verse 19, that surpasses knowledge. Okay, now, my last description of God's love this morning is this. God's love is knowable okay which right away you should say pastor tim based on verse 19 god says that his love is not knowable so how do i reconcile this statement in verse 18 that you may be able to grasp with all the saints what you can't know all right so what do you do with that kind of a statement okay and the question is what is this pointing to what is this how High and wide and deep and long is the love of... What does that mean? Are we to take every one of those words and kind of come up with a description for every one of those words? Is that the purpose? Or is this a grammatical device that Paul is using to say it's, it's just like so amazing? Okay, very similar to what happens when a young man meets a young woman and tries to put into words this feeling that defies explanation. This effect from meeting this person that they just can't put into words. I think the thrust of this text is very clear. God wants us to apprehend His love in some way. And so in verse 18, He can say, I want you to grasp. Okay, the idea here is to lay hold of, to seize in a personal way. Or if you want to write it this way, make God's love your own. Get into the, into the acreage of God's love and start to consume it acre by acre. You can't see the whole thing. But 
part by part begin to comprehend and know this love of God. But see, Paul's desire is that they would understand the magnitude and magnificence of God's love that can only be known with divine help. So verse 18, as it begins, he's saying that you may have power. And if I just drop back up to verse 16, where's the power coming from? It's coming from God by the Spirit. So by the Spirit, 1 Corinthians 2 says, things that I couldn't understand, I begin to understand. Now, the fact that the Spirit of God is helping me to understand, it doesn't mean I understand as fully as I possibly could. Because this is the amazing thing about God's love. You can study it lifelong, live a long life, study the love of God. And here's the cool thing. You will never fully understand it. And every circumstance that you face that reveals the love of God to you in some fresh, new kind of way will show you another dimension of God's love. And some experience with brothers and sisters in Christ, along with whom you are comprehending the love of God, will reveal and manifest another area, another nuance of God's love. It's what should happen in our marriages, isn't it? It's what should happen in our relationship with our kids. Various circumstances reveal new avenues or manifestations or understandings of the depth of their love. I watch people go through struggling as a pastor, visiting people in the hospital. I don't think, Gren and Frank Vitale aren't here this morning, right? I didn't see them. I'll tell you what, I, that man loves his wife. Watched him in the hospital and, and their daughter also. I watched a, a kind of love that she was learning about her husband in the context of her suffering. And she commented on that to me. That he had been just so unbelievable and inexplainable. What she was saying was this. Pastor, I, I, it would be hard to put into words how I have seen his love blossom in this setting. Folks, that, that's with God what we should be beginning to seek to know. This idea of these four words talks about the, if you will, the magnitudes of God's love. The goal on Paul's part isn't to lay it out as fully as he possibly could, but it is to show us how glorious, and if I can use this word, how limitless God's love is. So what we're saying is, this love can't be known apart from divine enablement. God, by the Spirit, has to make it known to you. Things that eye has not seen and ear has not heard and the mind can't comprehend, God makes known to people. How? 1 Corinthians 2. By the Spirit. If you understand God's love in any way, it is because you have been enabled by the Spirit to see that love. And that should so deeply humble you and draw you to your knees before God, saying, God, show me more of your incomprehensible and incredible love. John Stott gives this summary description of God's limitless love. He says, It is broad enough to encompass all mankind, long enough to last for eternity, deep enough to reach to the most degraded sinner, and it is high enough to take us to heaven. Isn't that amazing? Here's what's cool for me this morning. I can honestly say this morning, there is no one sitting in this room who is beyond the love of God. You know, the Apostle Paul reflected on this, didn't he? He said, I am the chiefest of sinners. 
and yet I was arrested by the grace of God. I experienced the love of God that radically converted and changed my heart. And you know what Paul's always doing? He's always just saying, you just can't get this kind of love. So the confidence that we can go into the world with is this. I will never encounter someone who is outside of the reach of God's love. And I never lock eyes with someone who is beyond the reach of God's love. Folks, understand this. If you meditate on God's love, you let it stabilize you and take you deep. If you let God's love flow in the context of vital relationships in your life. And if you look at this love and say, God, I'm going to begin to comprehend that which is incomprehensible. I'm going to begin to live the paradox. I'm going to begin to understand pieces of your love. And as I grasp those pieces, I am going to confess to you that at the end of my life, having tried to know your love, I will understand a small portion of it. And for eternity, I will spend my time plumbing the depths the heights, the lengths, and the widths of God's love. Folks, I think that is an amazing thing. That for eternity, we will have opportunity to get our spiritual arms around what we will never get our spiritual arms around. And every new revelation of it will be so amazing and so deeply encouraging. The end of verse 19, here's what Paul says. He says, I want you to know this love that surpasses knowledge, which means bit by bit, piece by piece, we begin to take it in so that you may be filled to the measure of the fullness of God. That God, I think, and I think that statement is simply a repeat of verse 17, so that Christ may settle down in and be at home in your heart. This morning, friend, do you know this love? I mean, have you come to God and found knowledge of that which is unknowable simply by faith? John 3.16 is the verse that I leave you with. God so loved the world in an incomprehensible way that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but will instead have everlasting life. You get into this love simply by faith. You don't earn it. You do not deserve it. And you desperately need it. Do you know Him in a personal way this morning? And Christian, friend, this morning, if you are wrestling with this season of spiritual dryness, I encourage you to meditate on the love of God. Study scriptures. Go type in on Bible Gateway, unfailing love, and you will find a deep drink 26 times in the Psalms. God's unfailing love is referenced in relationship to his children. Study his love. And the place that God's love is most clearly revealed is at the cross of Christ. Because if you love God this morning, you love him because he first loved you. If you love him, you love him because he first loved you. First John 4 and verse 19, which means that my love for God is always a response. I am never the initiator. 
I am always the responder to the love of God. And I would encourage you as we come to the Lord's table this morning to meditate upon these truths about the love of God that will stabilize you, that is best understood in relationships, and that is knowable though limitless. 1 John 3 and verse 16 gives us this reminder. It says, this is how we know what love is. I gave you my brief description of it. It is God's personal, irrevocable choice to do us good in spite of what it cost. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life willingly for us. And if he did that for us, John will conclude this. We ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. So Father, as we come to the table this morning, 